There are some people that it's easy just to skip right over in Scripture. And in fact, there are many people who would rather have you skip over those people. And even perhaps to some degree, uh, the person might be intentionally being passed over to some degree in the pages of Scripture because of the purposes of the author. And sometimes it's good for us to step back and consider these people and what their story may have to tell us. And that is certainly true when it comes to Hagar. Who is Hagar? How is she presented Genesis and the rest of Scripture? What can we learn from her example? Hi, I'm Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we are thankful for the gift of the time that you are spending with us as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and in the pages of Scripture. And today, let's consider the example of Hagar. Now, what we know about Hagar comes from Genesis 16 and chapter 21. Anything else that is said about her comes from these narratives. As a reminder, Genesis is generally believed to have been written by Moses, although nowhere in Genesis, the Old or New Testament, does anybody explicitly say that. And so we will continue to speak of him as the Genesis author. He would have been written about 1450 B.C. or 1250 B.C., depending on one's view of the Exodus. Many scholars would want to date the writing of many parts of Genesis to much later than that. But the customs that Sarah and Abraham are displaying about Hagar here in Genesis 16 are absolutely better conforming to the end of the third millennium B.C. than a period 500 or more years later. We don't have any contemporaneous, specific, explicit extra-biblical references to Hagar. And when we try to make sense of the chronology of the characters in Genesis in terms of Exodus, wilderness, wanderings, the judges, and kings, we would suggest Hagar lives sometime toward the end of the 3rd millennium B.C., uh, maybe something like 2050 to 1990 B.C. in that range. I mean, this is a very contentious dating. Some would date her far later. Uh, but what we see in the Genesis narratives makes better sense in this time than uh, any other time. Now, the time that this is going on is a great transition period in the ancient Near East. The old kingdom of Egypt and the Akkadian Empire of Mesopotamia collapsed in the 22nd century BC, uh, likely at least in part because of what we now call the 4.2 kill year event, a major dry spell in the ancient Near Eastern world that led to severe famine and political collapse. Uh, we can see this in the Bible, where the destruction of Sodom, you know, the whole idea that that area was as green as the Garden of Eden, and afterward very much not so. Uh, the uh, various reliefs, uh, portrayals of the land around the Giza Pyramids show it like a, a savanna, something like we would expect to see like uh, much further south in like Kenya in, in Africa. Uh, and of course, afterward, it would no longer look anything like that. And that kind of drying event is absolutely going to have political ramifications. And this is defining the transition archaeologically from the early Bronze Age to the Middle Bronze Age in this part of the world. Now, Hagar is Egyptian, and he's reckoned as Sarai's Shifchat, often translated as handmaiden or servant girl. But as Paul says in Genesis, I mean, Galatians excuse me, 4, 24, and 25, when he's talking about Hagar allegorically, he calls her the slave woman, and that is not wrong. Uh, now, rabbinical Jewish and some Muslim commentators have tried to suggest that Hagar was really a princess, a daughter of Pharaoh. But we can see that pretty clearly as a later projection to try to enhance the dignity and standing of Hagar and Abraham in the situations. And we can say that because Egyptian pharaohs are notorious for proving willing to marry the princesses of foreign leaders, but did not give their own daughters to non-Egyptians. Uh, we look in the Amarna letters and things of that nature, we can see in the, in the foreign policy uh, where they would receive the women, uh, but uh, the other kings are wondering why uh, Pharaoh hasn't given his daughters out to them. And that's why 
the king's author will make so much in 1 Kings 9, 16, 24, and 11 in verse 1 about Solomon receiving an Egyptian princess as a wife. It's demonstrating the profound nature of Solomon's power, and that's why it has undue emphasis. It's the exception that kind of proves the rule. That Pharaoh would give Abraham male and female slaves is enough indication of the high esteem in which Abraham was held in Genesis 12, 16, because... Um, Egypt was going through convulsions at the time of the collapse of the centralized state at the end of the 6th dynasty and heading into the period of the divided rule, the first intermediate period. There had been a pharaoh ruling over Heraclopolis up in lower Egypt. Uh, We don't know anything about Hagar's origins except that she is Egyptian and a slave girl. Uh, We have some confidence to assume that she would have been given to Abraham and Sarai among the female servants pharaoh gave to Abraham on account of Sarai in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, and that we would imagine that she is much younger than both Abraham and Sarai. Now, Sarah, slavery did exist in ancient Egypt, but it wasn't nearly as prevalent there as it was in Mesopotamia. So many people imagine like the pyramids and just it had to be built with slave labor. It really wasn't. We, we found all kinds of documentation of this. In fact, what happened was that the uh, pyramids were being built by the labor of all the free people, uh, especially men, uh, brought into a corvée, into conscripted service during the months of the flood, when they couldn't do anything in their fields anyway, because the fields are flooded, and in the flood, the channels near the pyramid were, were open, and it would have made much more easy access to get the stones there, and so that's uh, what it seems to have been the way it goes. Those who were enslaved in Egypt were frequently prisoners of war and therefore often the Asiatics, as they would call them, the Libyans and the Nubians. But during the first intermediate period in the Middle Kingdom, we start seeing evidence for girls being sold into slavery in order to pay for the debts of their parents. And this is the very time period that we have of Abraham and Sarai. So it would not be surprising at all for Hagar to have been sold into slavery by her parents to pay off a debt and enter thus the house of Pharaoh and then given to Abraham and Sarai. So, this is the story that we have of Hagar. We learn about her in chapter 16 and chapter 21 of Genesis. Now, in Genesis 16, we only learn about Hagar because of the decisions made by Sarai and Abraham in Genesis 16. Uh, We know they had other male and female slaves. We don't know much else about them, except that they exist. Why do we know about Hagar? Well, because Sarai has been childless throughout her 75 years. And in Mesopotamian custom, this endangers her standing before her husband, who would be seen as in the right to divorce her and to marry a woman who could produce an heir. But Mesopotamian customs also allowed for a woman like Sarah to provide a proxy wife to her husband. And whatever child that proxy wife would bear would become the legitimate heir and reckoned as the child of the barren woman, something like uh, Ruth's son Obed being reckoned as Naomi's uh, son in Ruth 4, 16 and 17. And thus... Sarai, Abraham's wife, had not given birth to any children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abraham, Since Yahweh has prevented me from having children, please sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have a family by her. And Abraham did what Sarai told him. We do well to note a few things. First of all, we're going to be told that this is ten years into the sojourn uh, uh, that the, it made from Haran to Canaan at the... Uh, later on in this passage, and that uh, the child Hagar is going to give birth to uh, happened when Abraham was 86 years old. Uh, So we should note especially that Hagar has no agency in this story. 
She's not consulted. Her approval or disapproval is irrelevant because she's reckoned as Sarai's property to do with as she pleases. And so, again, operating under the assumption Hagar was given to Abraham and Sarai during their Egyptian sojourn, and therefore has dwelt in Sarai's tent and served as her slave for the better part of a decade. Now, we're not told exactly how long they had been in Canaan before they went to Egypt for this sojourn, uh, but we're going to, for our presume, it happened fairly soon after they arrived. So we don't know how old is uh, Hagar is. We have to be honest about that. But uh, she's almost certainly younger than Abraham or Sarai. Uh, perhaps not much more than a teenager or 20-something. Uh, we could imagine that she could have been sold into slavery t- uh, and, and then given to Abraham or Sarai as something as young as a child. Uh, even if she's somewhat older, like in a teenage years. Uh, all that we know is that by this point, she is of sufficient age to be able to bear children, so at least 15, uh, maybe older. So Sarai's plan initially proves successful. Hagar becomes pregnant with Abraham's child in Genesis 16 and verse 4. Then in the text we hear that once Hagar realized she was pregnant, she despised Sarai in verse 4. She may well believe her station has been elevated. She is a wife of Abraham now, and she's now pregnant. And she just begins to despise Sarai as less than since she remains barren. Now, it's also possible Hagar is resentful about the situation in which she has been placed. But the Genesis author wants us to see Hagar, likely in youthful naivete and arrogance, presuming beyond her station here. And Sarai is incensed with this, that her slave girl would presume to be of a higher station. And she goes to Abraham and says, You have brought this wrong on me. I gave my servant into your embrace, but when she realized she was pregnant, she despised me. May Yahweh judge between you and me. That seems kind of strange to us, because this wasn't this whole thing Sarai's idea. Well, sure, but not the, rec- the attitude changes that would come as a result. And Sarai here is in a very pre- uh, precarious predicament, because... Hagar can now be the favored wife. She's now a slave wife, sure, but is a wife of Abraham. Abraham could decide to choose Hagar over Sarai. But Abraham's response, since your servant is under your authority, do to her whatever you think best, is an assurance that he does not really reckon Hagar as a wife as much as a slave, specifically the slave of his wife Sarai, and more her uh, domain and authority issue than his. And thus, Sarai treats Hagar harshly, and Hagar, as a result, runs away. So Hagar is now pregnant, run away, technically kind of free. Uh, but the angel of Yahweh finds Hagar on a spring to the road to Shur. We don't know exactly where Shur is, but based on everything we do know, it's definitely between the Negev of Israel and Egypt. And that would suggest, which would make sense, that Hagar is on the way back to Egypt. And the angel asked her where she had come from and where she was going. She said she was running away from her mistress. Uh, This is where it's important that today in modern parlance, mistress is the term that is most often used to describe a situation in which a man has taken to a relationship with a woman beyond the wife that he has. Uh, We talk about such people as mistresses. Uh, But this is the original form of mistress, which is the uh, feminine version of master. A man is a master, a female is a mistress. And therefore, we need to keep that in mind that when we hear mistress in this text, we need to think a female master. Now, the angel here tells her to return to Sarai and to submit to her authority, promising that Yahweh would multiply her descendants to the son that she was about to bear. 
And that Yahweh, would then, the angel, then testified that her, she should name her his son Ishmael. God hears because God has heard Hagar's groans. That yes, he will be a hostile man to others, and others will be hostile to him, and that he would live in the desert wilderness. Now Hagar identifies Yahweh as speaking to her through the angel, confessed him as the God who saw her, and named the place Be'er Lahairoi, well of the living one who sees me. Uh, generally associated with Kadesh Barnea in later times. And Hagar approved obedience to the words of that angel. She returned to Sarai, gave birth to Abraham's son, whom Abraham named Ishmael. So then, you know, Ishmael and Hagar are now living in among the tents of Abraham and Sarai. As far as we can tell, the Hagar continued to serve Sarai for at least 15 years. Uh, when, however, Isaac was weaned now, so Isaac was born 13 years after Ishmael, and we, we're using a very minimal amount of time uh, of two years to weaning. Could very well have been three or four, maybe even five at this time. Uh, he sees, she, Sarah sees Ishmael mocking Isaac uh, and demanded Abraham banish Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis 21, 8 through 10. Now, what kind of m mockery is going on? Uh, it's the verb about Yashak. Actually, Ishmael is Yashaking Isaac, Yitzhak, uh, which is an interesting uh, consideration there. Uh, there can be a laughing in derision, laughing at type thing, uh, kind of like a joke. There are also sexual innuendos in other passages. Uh, Potiphar will say that the Joseph had come in to humiliate or mock her. Uh, and Rebecca and Isaac were... Isaac was seen... Uh, uh, talking with Rebecca, uh, and the NET will translate that as caressing with a note that it could mean fondling. Uh, so it's a public display of affection. So we don't know exactly what's going on here. It could have been uh, something very severe, or it could have just been uh, attempting to uh, act like he was a better man. And regardless of how severe it was, Sarah sees this and said, nope, I'm not letting the slave woman and her son uh, live, you know, be raised at the same with my precious son. And uh, when Abraham hears this, he's not happy about it because of Ishmael, his son. Notice, not about Hagar, it's about Ishmael. He, he doesn't want Ishmael to go away. But God tells him, uh, do what Sarah's telling you because through Isaac your descendants will be named. But I will also make the son of the slave wife into a great nation for he is your descendant as well. And so Abraham takes some food and water, gives it to Hagar, sends off Hagar and Ishmael, and they wander in the wilderness of Beersheba. Again, it's a good reminder that we're talking about wilderness here, not talking about a nice place with all kinds of trees and well-watered areas. We're talking about desert wastes. Soon after, the water ran out, and verses 15 and 16, we have this just utterly cutting, gutting situation where Hagar sets Ishmael down and then goes away uh, to a distance because he doesn't want to watch him die, and he just, she just weeps. Now God hears Ishmael's cry. His angel again speaks to Hagar, telling her to get up, that he would make of Ishmael a great nation, that she was made to see a well of water. And because of that, Hagar and Ishmael would survive. In verses 17 through 19. Now Israel, Ishmael excuse me, grew up and strong and became skilled with a bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, which is associated with Sinai. So either it could be in the southern Sinai Peninsula, where Mount Sinai traditionally is understood, or perhaps it is in northwestern Saudi Arabia, uh, where there is an alternate site for uh, the Mount Sinai. And Hagar, it said, found him a wife from Egypt, which indicates that she cultivated some involvement and interaction with her homeland. And this is all that we learn of Hagar. The only other time she's going to be mentioned again in Torah is Genesis 25 and verse 12 as Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, as the mother of Ishmael. 
And then the Genesis author will go on to record the genealogies of Ishmael, who would become the father of many Arabian people living just beyond the quote-unquote civilized area in the wildernesses from Egypt to Assyria. So what are we going to make about what we see about Hagar? So we've seen that Hagar is mentioned here only in Genesis 16, 21, and 25, 12 in the Torah, not mentioned again in the Hebrew Bible. And the only time she's mentioned in the New Testament is Galatians 4, 22-29, where Paul is setting up this allegory looking at Hagar, Ishmael, Sarah, and Isaac. And he's trying to draw this comparison. And it's, what's ironic about the comparison is that in his allegory, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai and the current earthly Jerusalem, whereas Sarah refers to the heavenly Zion, uh, that we are to be children of the free woman, i.e. Sarah, and not children of the slave woman, i.e. Hagar. And what's ironic about that is, I mean, here Hagar is now being used as a way to describe Israel. And we shouldn't really read a whole lot into that because it's an allegorical use. Paul knows the story. Paul is using that story to try to communicate something. And, and the, what he's trying to communicate is, is, is only tangentially related to the story because it's a very different application than we would have in the, the story as is. And we shouldn't take away from that that Paul has any kind of hostility, animosity, or negative feelings toward Hagar. She's not mentioned Hebrews 11. She's not mentioned anywhere else. So with this barely punctuated silence, it'd be easy to say, well, we should write Hagar off, or maybe Hagar's not that great of an example, or what's going on here. Um, the Hebrews author makes plain in Hebrews 11.32, though he's not trying to make an exhaustive list, and his focus is in Genesis is on Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, and some of the things about the way they're living. And so we shouldn't presume a whole lot from his silence that he doesn't really have much thought about Hagar. What we're doing here is noticing that silence. And, I mean, it's possible that there's some animosity. We can't discount the possibility there's animosity uh, toward Hagar from some of the later biblical authors. But just to notice that she's been very easily passed over and what that might mean. Because there's two episodes, really in one episode with two applications, where we see some really compelling things going on regarding Hagar. In Genesis, God directly speaks with Eve and Sarah in Genesis 3 and Genesis 18. Now, the only other woman to have any kind of theophany like this in the text is Hagar. The Genesis author wants to make it clear that Hagar is visited by an angel of Yahweh, but in chapter 16 and verse 13, she's convinced it's Yahweh himself. Now, when the angel of Yahweh came to speak with her, it's a message of great difficulty in the midst of great pain. Really, great pain. She's, she's in, in great difficulty. She has this mistress who is treating her horribly because of the decisions her mistress made. It's not like Hagar did anything to get into this situation that, that, that she had any control over. And now she's being asked to go back and submit to this mistress. But in the midst of this, her response is, Yahweh saw her and named the place well of the living God who sees, Be'er Lahai Roy, in Genesis 16, 13, and 14. This is a truly extraordinary moment, because Hagar is a slave. She is exiled from her home community. She is married to her mistress's husband, pregnant with his child, treated harshly by her mistress because of it, running away, heading home to Egypt. She has every reason to feel unseen and disregarded. And after all that's transpired, what reason would she have to put any faith in the God of Abraham and Sarai? 
Yet the angel of Yahweh visited her, and she recognized how God saw her. And the angel's request is quite the thing. To return to submit to a mistress who has been harsh and who sees her as a threat and will continue to do so. Now Hagar, an Egyptian slave, submits to the will of God in this way, returns to the service of Sarai, and all because God has seen her. In recent years, we have become to grow much more conscious of the plight of those who have little power standing in the world. And Hagar exemplifies this kind of situation. The bitter truth is people like Hagar have lived and died and were never really seen. Even in the biblical witness, Hagar is barely seen and only because of these decisions Abraham and Sarai made. And how many others who toiled like Hagar are unnamed and unseen? Now, people have depend upon their service and labor. But societies have always built structures to rationalize why some should have and the rest have less. Slave societies in particular, in order to rationalize their existence, invariably develop ideologies which dehumanize the slave into a piece of property. So to Sarai, Hagar might just have been a slave to do her bidding, an available womb to address her own lack. But God sees Hagar and promises her blessings. And when we see what Jesus has to say in Matthew 25, 31-46, it's all the more extraordinary that God continues to see those whom society has degraded and disregarded and will hold us accountable as to whether we have seen them or ignored them because Jesus says that inasmuch as we have done it and helped those or inasmuch as we did not help those we did or did not help Jesus himself that Jesus is identifying with those who are often unseen because he is the God who sees. A few verses earlier, there's another extraordinary element of the angel's message that involves the name Hagar was to give to her son, Ishmael, because God had heard her travail and her groans. When considered on a theological level, Ishmael's birth is a failure of true obedience and faithfulness on Sarah and Abraham's part. It's the attempt of humans to intervene. Now, maybe with the best of intentions, thinking that they need to do something to accomplish God's purposes, when in fact their intervention leads to greater complications. And we have to maintain that kind of theological analysis, and it's very important for us in light of the way that so many years later, in fact, 2,600 years later, Muhammad is going to elevate Ishmael on his line to rationalize the Arabians as God's chosen people through Abraham. And it's a deliberate distortion of what Yahweh accomplished through Abraham. Because Isaac is the child of promise. This is the earliest sect. This is the earliest testimony uh, that cannot be so easily just dispensed with because uh, Muhammad, so many years later, claimed to have a different revelation. It is through Isaac, not Ishmael, that Jesus the Christ will come. But in all of this, and it is very important the theological discussion to recognize that you know Hagar is is going through all this, and this child is born. And if Abraham and Sarah had just put the trust in Yahweh, they should have had would not have happened. There would have been no Ishmael. Would have been no justification for the story the way Muhammad is going to take it. Nevertheless, they did engage in this behavior, and it's Hagar who gets caught in the middle. And Hagar's not at fault at all. It's not like she chose the situation for herself. But who is it who pays the price? It's Hagar. Hagar is an Egyptian slave of a wandering Aramean woman in Canaan. 
She is enlisted to become the slave wife of her mistress's husband, which brings her no advancement or standing uh, in enhancement in the eyes of her mistress. In fact, only jealousy and continual suspicion. After harsh treatment, she runs away, but returns because God has seen her and commanded her to do so. She will spend another 15 or more years as a slave of Sarah until Sarah dispenses with her in a heartbeat the moment she sees Ishmael treating Isaac with less than deference. Let's go back to Hagar's life at the moment of Genesis 21 and verse 16. A slave woman cast out of her mistress's tent, dying of dehydration in the desert wastes, sobbing over the prospect of her child also dying of dehydration. Because what did Hagar get from the tents of Sarai and Abraham but pain, suffering, and bitterness? While Sarah proved quite willing to dispense with Hagar and Ishmael, and Abraham only dragged his feet a bit because of his love for Ishmael, and even though Sarai giving Hagar to Abraham as a slave wife was not according to God's purposes, God nevertheless heard Hagar in her pain, and God provided for her and her son. For a lot of reasons, people will often not see or hear our pain. Sometimes people don't see or hear our pain because their actions have led to it, and they don't want to come to grips with that. Other times, they're so consumed with their own issues, they have little compassion for others. Sometimes they are concerned they may end up like you and want to create distance between you and them because of that. Have you seen how people treat service employees at restaurants, stores, and other similar venues? Have you heard the reputation that Christians have when they go out to eat on Sundays uh, by those who work in the service industry in terms of their behavior and especially how they are not known for being generous in their gratuity? If this is the way that people today treat people who are ostensibly recognized as, as equal citizens uh, in, in a society that's trying to be more functionally egalitarian, and yet the minute that you feel like you've got a position of social standing over and above somebody, uh, you treat them so poorly, how much worse would the treatment have been for slaves who are reckoned as your property? But even though no one heard Hagar and her pain, Sarah wasn't going to listen to Hagar and her pain. Abraham wasn't going to listen to Hagar and her pain. God did. In Christ there is neither slave nor free, Greek or barbarian, we are told, in Galatians 3.20 and Colossians 3.11. And God calls upon us to hear one another's pain and to prove willing to sit in lamentation. In 1 Corinthians 12.25-26, that when one member suffers, all suffer together. Hagar became a problem for Sarai, even though it was a problem of Sarai's making. And after the Genesis author explained how the Arabian peoples have a share in Abraham through Ishmael, the rest of the scripture passes over Hagar, save for Galatians 4, and even then only an allegory as an object lesson. And Hagar has been passed over time and time again. How many studies have you seen done on Hagar? How many sermons have you heard on Hagar? But God saw and heard Hagar. And even though Hagar obtained nothing but misery from the tents of Sarai and Abraham, Hagar believed in their God who saw and heard her. Hagar trusted in him, and he did not disappoint her. We should not be deceived. God has seen the ones we refuse to see. God has hurt their pain that we refuse to address. God will judge. So what do you see in the story of Hagar? How can we look at Hagar as a model and example of faith? What can we see from all she endures and how God proved faithful to her? 
And how should we, therefore, treat people that we find in our lives who might be in a condition a lot like Hagar's? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Please let us know in the comments. We'd love for you to subscribe to us where you found us. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all the blessings you've given us, the material blessings of this creation and life and everything that we have within it. We're thankful for every spiritual blessing with it you've given us in Jesus and for the redemption we have in him, the hope of resurrection for one another and for the witness that you have established in your word and the strength that you provide through your spirit. As we come and consider Hagar, whom you saw, we uh, do well, Father, to, to be given eyes, and we pray that you would give us the eyes to see the people who are often unseen and to be able to hear them in their pain and to be able to recognize them and identify with them as fellow human beings made in your image and to not use the various justification rationalization in the world to keep them away, but to bring them near and to encourage them and to see them the way that you saw and heard Hagar. We pray, Father, that you would heal those who are ill, comfort those who are in affliction and pain and distress and grieving, to sustain life where and protect it where it is in danger, and that in all things your will will be accomplished. And may we share in the resurrection of life because we have provided for those who are in need and have seen them and have seen your Son in them and have thus obtained the resurrection of life. In his name that we pray, amen. And so glad that you've joined us. If we can be of any service further, if you have any questions, comments, if we can be of any service to you, if you don't, if you wonder if God sees you or you think people see you, we want to see you. We want to encourage you. Please reach out to us at VenisherToChrist.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.